Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. Good morning, White Sulphur. It's good to see you right now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into anything this morning. Father, we are coming to you humbled today. We're going to be looking into your word and seeing examples of how you forgive. I pray this morning that there are hearts softened as we allow your word to inform our minds and our emotions and our souls. I pray that hearts would be softened to the idea of forgiveness that you would remove barriers um, and burdens, other things that might be holding someone back from, from truly understanding what is being offered to them in Christ and in the good news of the gospel. And I pray that when those things are realized, when that uh, forgiveness is received into someone's life, that that would produce joy, that that would produce praise, and that that would produce a holy and obedient life that is lived to your glory. So I pray for these things as we approach your word this morning. And I pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 2. That's where we're going to be again this morning as we can continue our series. We have now made it out of the first chapter. I know some of you thought that was not going to happen, but here we are. We've finally made it out of the gate, and we're going to be continuing. Um, but before we get to the passage, we'll, we'll be covering uh, 2, 1 through 17. And, and the sermon will be titled, Mission, Not Monastery. Mission, Not Monastery. Uh, but before we get there, there's a couple of things that I just wanted to share with you. So as I've been studying for these sermons, as I've been praying and, and, and thinking about the future of white sulfur and where we could be going and what we could be doing and, and what the Bible uh, would inform us on it as far as our direction as a church. I don't think it's actually as uh, specific to an individual church as some may think. That we see that there is a great commission and that all churches are to be carrying that out. All Christians are to be carrying out that great commission uh, to go out to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're supposed to be doing. And as I've, like I said, as I've been studying and praying and dreaming and, and thinking about the future, there's um, a kind of distilling that has been happening where I've kind of gotten down to a couple of phrases. And I can't take credit for these. I know that I read them somewhere. I just don't know where I read them. But they keep coming back to me over the last few weeks. And the first is this, that we have to get the gospel right. We have to get the gospel right. That means that on paper, our doctrine has to be correct, that that matters, that what we're teaching and what we're taking out to the world is really important. But getting the gospel right isn't just an on paper thing, that getting the gospel right also means applying it correctly to our lives. And so an example of, of those two things working together would be that uh, we are sinners in need of forgiveness, Jesus is the Savior that came to earth to pay the debt of sin so that we can have forgiveness. And when we place our faith in him, we are a forgiven people. And since we are forgiven, we ought to be people who are forgiving others. That's applying the gospel to our lives. That's allowing, uh, getting the gospel right, not just on paper, but also in application. 
And so that matters. But the, the other half that has been coming to mind is, so get the gospel right. The other half would be get the gospel out. We could distill things down to these two things. That our doctrine has to be right, but it can't stay here within the church walls. So if we have what the world needs here, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, um, we have to be taking that out to people. So if we have right doctrine, but we don't take it out, we're missing the mark. If we're taking doctrine out, but it's not the right doctrine, if it's not good theology, if it's not really the gospel, then again, we've missed the mark. And so going forward, these things have been heavy on my mind and heavy on my heart, that we get the gospel right and we get the gospel out. So what I was going to ask you to do today is just jot that down somewhere, uh, whether you know, it be on a notepad or it be in your phone, uh, text it to someone. I, I text my wife things that I need to remember, so she gets a lot of random messages throughout the day. Um, so do something like that. And what I would ask is that you would just be uh, contemplating and praying on those two things. That as a church, how is, how is white sulfur getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out? And how can we be doing that more efficiently in the future? How can we be doing that well as we walk into uh, this new year? Those are two things that have been heavy on my mind. So be praying about those things. Now, our series that we've been in, Mark, uh, if you've been with us a little while, then you've heard me recap it a few times I'm not going to keep doing that as extensively each sermon now that we're out of the first chapter. So what I would recommend is you go back and you can listen on Facebook or YouTube. And we also have a podcast feed for the sermon. So you can find it on one of those things to kind of catch up if you're new or visiting with us. Um, but just a, a very short summary is that we're going through the Gospel of Mark because I believe that the Gospel of Mark is good news for hard times. That it tells us about the Jesus that came to earth, the incarnation, the one that came to save sinners. That he is our way to be reconciled to a just and holy and beautiful and loving and gracious and merciful God. And that in him, faith in him alone, there is hope for eternal life and joy with God. And that's good news for any hard time that we might be going through. We've seen that he's no ordinary rabbi. He's not just a teacher. Mark says that he is the very son of God. And we've seen that he's a compassionate king. We see that he's going to come into conflict, especially now, this morning, with religious leaders. And that he's going to open the eyes of those who really perceive themselves as very righteous. And so we're going to start in chapter 2, right at verse 1 this morning. If you have your Bibles open, go ahead and read along with me. It says, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So like we talked about last week, the word of God preaching is central to the mission of Jesus, that he's not just healing people, but he wants to heal people so that they understand who he is. Those are the miracles are pointing to the identity of Christ. And here again in verse two, we see that central that the crowds are gathering. He's preaching the word to them, but they're still bringing uh, sick people that need to be healed. They're still maybe missing the point, but let's keep reading. Verse 4, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk, and that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So a couple of observations here. Uh, This man has four friends willing to climb a building and tear open a roof to get him to Jesus. I was thinking, maybe, do you know if you have four friends that would work that hard to get you to Jesus should you need it? Do you have two friends or one friend? Maybe those are the kind of friendships and relationships we ought to be pursuing. And then the the religious leaders, when he says, son, your, your sins are forgiven, they are not okay with that because that's a big deal for him to take the authority or say that he has the authority to forgive sins. And they ask, uh, Jesus asked them this question as kind of a rebuttal. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? I mean, realistically, those two sentences seem about the same difficulty level to say. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, he continues in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So one sentence more easily or directly communicates what Jesus wants to communicate to the watching Pharisees and the religious leaders. It's not about the words he's actually saying. It's he's making a clear statement that is easy for them to understand that he's claiming to be God, to stand in the place of God, to have the authority in himself to forgive sins. And then in verse 12, right down here at the bottom, it says, So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying we never saw anything like this. And I think that is the only proper response when we see miracles happen, that they were amazed and they glorified God. We don't want to chase miracles. We want to chase the God of miracles. So that was a proper response that we see in verse 12. So in this story, we um, see that God will often work through people for other people. And sometimes we are the ones needing to be carried to Jesus. Maybe it's our own sin that has paralyzed us. I really believe that the majority, if not all, of the miracles recorded in the New Testament are really trying to point towards a spiritual reality. They're not the end in and of themselves. And so a lot of times we can become paralyzed and not believe that we can go to Jesus because we become entangled in sin or blinded by sin, especially sins that are left uh, unrepented of or unconfessed or, or are kept hidden, the ones that don't really show up on the outside, but uh, sins committed on the internet or substance abuse or pride or anger, those things that you don't really see on a Sunday morning but are kind of hovering or simmering 
beneath the surface. Those are the kind of sins that can paralyze us and make us feel like we can't go to Jesus. And the longer a sin like that goes undealt with, the more seared the conscience becomes. The more spiritually blind you become. The, the more, I should say, the less sensitive you are uh, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we'll start repeating things back to ourselves like, I have, I have confessed this so many times. I have taken this to the feet of Jesus so many times. I have laid this sin down and I pick it back up again. And we tell that to ourselves and we tell that to ourselves and we start repeating that and we start to believe it, that, that maybe Jesus doesn't even want me to come back to him anymore. Maybe he's offended at how much I have struggled with this particular sin. And we become paralyzed. So it's, it's in those moments that you need your four friends, right? You need those guys that are willing to tear open a roof and lower you down to Jesus. We need them to remind us of the promises in Scripture when we can't remember them ourselves. We have to remember that he is good and just to forgive us our sins when we turn to him in faith. We need to remember that when we're feeling paralyzed by sin. We need to remember that he's rich in mercy, that, that you can't exhaust his mercy, that no matter how many times you have to turn back to him and repent and in turn in faith to put a sin to death, that he is merciful and he is good to forgive us. Our sins may be many, but his mercy is more, just like we sang this morning. I love the songs that we sing. We're, we're singing theology. We're singing truth. And the Lord inhabits the praises of his people when we sing. But maybe it's the sin of another person against you that has left you paralyzed. So maybe it's nothing that you've done at all. Maybe it's the sin of another person. Maybe it happened to you a long time ago, even all the way back to childhood. And those kinds of things can also leave someone paralyzed. Those kinds of things can leave you stuck in fear like your foot is caught in a bear trap and you can't move forward from what happened. Usually those are brought on by someone especially close to us, like, like a spouse or a parent, maybe even a pastor or a church leader. And because of that, because of the pain that we experience, it's common to want to retreat, to, to hide away, to protect Yourself to become excessively introverted, I'm not going to get hurt again. So I'm just going to stay right here. I'm not going to go any farther with this group of people. I don't want to get hurt. It's safer if I just do this. It's safer if I stay on my own. It's safer if I don't keep trying to pursue Jesus because when I do that, I end up around his people that keep hurting me. That can be paralyzing it keeps us from attending church and bible studies and and it's in those moments of the paralyzing pain that we need our brothers and sisters to bring us to Jesus when we feel like we can't do it ourselves and again it's it's christians reminding christians of the promises that are in scripture for us the truth and we allow the truth of god's word to inform our emotions and not the other way around so just listen to these Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's a promise. For they shall be comforted. 
If you've mourned, if you are mourning, whether it be your sin or someone else's, you will be comforted. He promises. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He is near the brokenhearted. He's not waiting around. He's not distant from you. He hasn't lost track of you. He knows exactly where you are and he's right there with you. So sometimes we need to be carried back to Jesus. We need those four friends willing to tear the roof open. But sometimes we are carrying our paralyzed friends to Jesus. So as much as you need the local church, and I'm not talking about the building. This isn't the church. You are the church. The gathered people of God, the congregation, the assembly, uh, that is the church. So as much as you need them, we need you. Every, church, every person is either carrying someone to Jesus or being carried to Jesus by someone else. The thing is that there are no lone ranger Christians. That's just something that the Bible doesn't describe. We see people in assembly. We see people in community, in relationship with each other. And it's difficult because our society is obsessed with this kind of um, hyper-independence. Right? I, don't, I don't need anybody else. Um, that you watch uh, TV shows and any, any kind of even game show now, it's really not about teamwork. They're actually trying to create ways to turn the team against each other. And eventually there's only one person standing. There's no real team. How many songs can you think of that are really preaching a gospel of independence? I don't need anybody else. I'm good on my own. Even on social media... We've been going, uh, we just finished a class actually in Sunday school uh, going over the, the dangers and the good things of social media. And, and this is something that I see all the time. It's this little meme that goes around and it says, if it costs you your peace, it costs you too much. I don't know that's true. If it costs you your peace, it costs you too much. To be honest, living in relationship with anybody at any point in time eventually is going to cost you some level of your peace. And I don't think that costs too much. Uh, the church is going to cost you your peace at some time. Sometimes your peace will be interrupted because you need to respond to someone like a brother or sister and bring them back to Jesus. Sometimes your peace will be interrupted because someone is interrupting your peace because you need to be brought back to Jesus. So let's be careful that our culture isn't informing how we live our lives and how we interact with the church. Listen to these. These are just some statements from the New Testament. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. And I could go on and on and on with these one another statements in the New Testament. These these are commandments and you can't fulfill them in isolation. You can't fulfill the, the one another commandments all by yourself as a Lone Ranger Christian. Now, if, you are, um, if you're homebound, if, if you have mobility issues, then the burden isn't on you. The burden is on the ones who don't have those restrictions to take the church to you. And we need to be thinking about that. 
The church here has to be a church. White Sulphur has to be a church that carries people to Jesus. And I, I believe that it is, but how do we keep that momentum going? How do we be that kind of church? And I think it takes a little bit more than Sunday mornings. Now hear me out, okay? Sunday mornings, I believe, are essential, central, primary to the Christian life. The, the gathered people of God singing praise, uh, public prayer, the public reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the ordinances, that is all essential to the Christian life. But if we want to be people that know what is going on in each other's lives, it might take a little bit more than just Sunday mornings. And so we have Sunday schools. That's a great option. You get involved in one of those, you spend a little bit more time around someone. We're going to be starting up Wednesday nights, like David talked about again. And the plan for that is that it would be, uh, I'm calling it like a dinner and devotions. Right? So it's not really another service, um, but it's going to be a, a focus on fellowship and also like the iron sharpening iron type of idea. Right? So we're trying to provide these areas where we can be in relationship with each other. So I would encourage you to plug into one of these groups. Commit to knowing and growing with people. Come ready and willing to carry someone to Jesus if need be. Come ready and willing to have someone carry you to Jesus if it need be. So then Jesus, he goes and he says he can forgive these sins, right, that are so paralyzing to us. And that really sets off the radar of the, or sets off the alarms of the religious leaders. They do not like that statement. And I was trying to think of an illustration. How do we today understand the problem that they're having and I think this is kind of a shaky one, but I think it, it works. So um, a police officer is allowed in certain circumstances, like I think when it comes to seatbelts, to either cite someone or to release them, right? They can forgive that offense or they can hold them accountable for that offense. And that's because they've been given authority by the superior authority, which is the government, right? They have an authority invested in them. So the officer has the choice on behalf of a higher authority to forgive an offense. But Jesus is not like that. He's not like the police officer. He is the higher authority. And that's exactly how the Pharisees and their scribes are understanding what Jesus has just done. He isn't saying that I'm forgiving you on behalf of someone else. He's saying I'm forgiving you. And that's the final word on it. That's a very different thing. If I'm counseling somebody and they're really struggling with with a lot of guilt and they have taken it to Jesus, but they just feel crushed by their sins. I might say, friend, your your sins are forgiven. I'm not saying that I have the authority to forgive them. I'm saying I acknowledge that Jesus has the authority and the ability and the willingness. And he's done that thing for you. That's not how Jesus is using the language right here. He's talking as the one that has been uh, the authority. He's speaking as that ultimate supreme authority to forgive sins. Jesus is actually forgiving sins as God. And he relates that back to Daniel chapter 7 by calling himself the son of man. So Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says this. I saw in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. They would have remembered Daniel chapter 7 and known that what Jesus is saying is that I am that prophesied one. I am the one that you've been looking forward to. I do have that authority. They do not like this. This is actually the spark that sets off the religious leaders as enemies of Jesus. They cry out that he's blaspheming. That he's claiming to be God when he's not. That he's taking the place of God when he shouldn't. That he's saying that he has the authority of God when they do not believe that that has been given to him. And ultimately, what he just did and what they knew he was saying is what ends up getting him killed at the end of Mark. In Mark 14, it says, Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And so from this point on, the first time that Jesus takes that title, the Son of Man, the first time that he claims to have the authority of God to forgive sins, he is at odds with the religious leaders. But it gets worse as we go through Mark. So verse 13 of chapter 2, we see him call Levi, the tax collector. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So again, Mark is pointing out this, um, this priority on the teaching of the word in his ministry. In verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he's, again, challenging their self-righteousness, their pride. And something that we need to understand about tax collectors, this part is important, is that they were not seen as great people to their fellow Jews. So the tax collectors were often uh, kind of working with the Roman government and taking money from people, uh, charging higher taxes than they ought to because they got to scrape all that extra off the top for themselves. As long as they turned into Rome, what was due to Rome, Rome didn't care how much they charged the people. And this was seen as um, really being a traitor, right, to their uh, fellow countrymen. So a tax collector was not a popular job with other Jews. And so these Pharisees, who saw themselves as very righteous and very moral, uh, and their scribes, they would have looked at Jesus eating with these people. And even calling one to be his disciple was absolutely crazy. Because we don't associate with people like that. We don't talk to people that do those kinds of things. So last week, Jesus, he went and he actually touched a physical leper, which that was crazy. 
And that was, that was against the law. That was uh, something that no one would ever do. You don't even pass them close by on the road. And here, this week, Jesus is actually interacting with what might be considered a social leper. People avoided them just as much, but not because of what was going on on their skin, because they saw them as deeply, deeply immoral. So last week, physical leper, and this week, social leper. But Jesus, like we said at the beginning, he was not coming to build monasteries. The idea of a monastery is that uh, you maybe go up into the mountains and you build kind of a castle and all the really godly people get inside of the castle and they keep all the really ungodly people out of the castle, away from them, because that's of the world and we're not of the world. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't come to build monasteries. He came to go on mission, to establish mission that goes to the world, that goes to those in need of salvation. He goes out to them. He sits with them. But throughout Christian history, throughout church history, oftentimes we've gotten this wrong. So we kind of swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. And the first mistake that we often make is is taking on the ethics, taking on the strategies, taking on the culture that we find ourselves in, in in an attempt to reach that culture. We'll say that if we just become more like them, then they'll be more open to hearing the gospel. They'll be more open to our message. We're removing barriers. I understand how someone can get there, but, but if we do that, then we've really discredited the need for a gospel. The gospel is that, that you're, you stand condemned before a holy God and you need Jesus. You need his forgiveness. So we can't do that. We can't completely take on the ethics, the strategies, and the values of the culture. But the second mistake that we can swing to is that we can build social walls so tall that we never interact with the society and culture around us. So we have the gospel, but we don't take the gospel out to the people that need it. We're never willing to sit with sinners and talk with them about who Jesus is. And so, yes, we want to shun the appearance of evil, but we don't also want to shun obedience. And those two have to be kept in balance. So, Christian or not, male or female, all humans have been created in the image of God. Whether they be lepers or tax collectors, they're image bearers. And that gives them eternal, immeasurable value. From the point of conception on, that that human is valuable is beautiful in the eyes of God. It bears his image. And that alone is enough that should motivate us to take the gospel to every person we possibly can. That includes the person living with someone that they aren't married to, the woman with the drinking problem, the man cheating on his wife, the teenager confused about their sexual identity, the grandparent with the gambling addiction, Every one of those is an image bearer. Every one of those people, they need the gospel. And they need to be carried to Christ, even if we have to tear open a roof to get them there. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 3. I'll give you a second to get there. Jonah chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, Jonah, just to summarize the story, if you're not familiar, uh, he was told by God to go to Nineveh and to preach to them because God had taken notice that the the Ninevites, they were so evil, that their corruption was so deep that he was going to actually destroy them. That they were kind of on his list to be 
taken care of. Jonah, who was a prophet, right, that should know what his job is, he actually hated the people so much that he refused to go to them. He refused to preach. He refused to tell them to repent. Jonah takes a boat ride to try and escape the direction that God is sending him. Uh, There's a storm. He gets thrown over because the sailors realize that it's probably his fault. And he gets eaten by a giant fish. Uh, He gets spit up on a beach. And he still tries to argue with God about what he's supposed to be doing. Which, that's like next level boldness, right? You just got eaten by a fish. And God had the fish drop you off where he wanted you. And you still have questions. Anyways, he gets spit up by the fish. He argues with God. And God directs him uh, to go and preach again. And so Jonah does. He does it reluctantly. He doesn't want to go, but I think it's really more out of fear of God at this point. And so Jonah 3, verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So Jonah, when he went to the people, they repented, and then Jonah's upset that they repented. He's like, they did exactly what I thought they were going to do, and you did exactly what I thought you were going to do. They repented, and you forgave them. I don't like them. That's not the outcome that I wanted. He hated Nineveh so much that he wanted to see them in hell. That's a dark place for a heart to be, to hate someone that much. God told Jonah to go to sinners and evangelize. Jesus himself went to the sinners and evangelized. So will you go, a forgiven sinner whom someone at one point evangelized, will you then go to sinners and evangelize? Will you do what's been done for you? Will you take the message that saved you to someone else so that they may be saved? At one time, every Christian in this room was like the Ninevites, lost in sin, wandering around without God, standing before God condemned, and then someone brought the word to you. You placed your faith in Jesus, and you're a forgiven person. How badly do you have to hate someone to not tell them that a train is coming and that they have to get off the tracks before it hits them? So let's not be like the 
Pharisees, like the scribes of the Pharisees. Let's not see ourselves in such a prideful or such through such a prideful lens that we won't even sit with someone who's lost. But let's go to them. Let's get the gospel out to them. Let's get the right gospel out to them. Let's see them saved. Let's see them brought into the kingdom. So remember Jesus' words. And Nathan, you can come join me at this time. Remember Jesus' words. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So there's really a couple of people in the passage this morning that you might see yourselves as. You might be the religious leaders, the ones looking down on those sinners. Maybe as we've been reading together, there's a person or a group that you've realized you've been unwilling to take the gospel to. Maybe it's your neighbor. It could be as close to you as that, or it could be a political party that you don't particularly care for. Those are sinners that need the gospel. Maybe you've realized this morning that you've had Jonah's attitude. You've been stubborn. You've even been rebellious in responding to the call that God has placed on your life. It's time to repent of that stubbornness and that pride. Become willing and obedient to go to the people that God would have you go to. Take the gospel to those that may be social lepers to you. If that's you this morning, I would invite you to come down here and have that moment before God. Be honest with him, get real with him, and I would love to pray with you as you navigate that. The other person that you might see yourself as this morning is um, the, the person that Jesus sat with. The one that is the tax collector, the one uh, who is the sinner and you've not known Jesus before. Maybe this is even your first encounter hearing about him. I would pray that you understand what is offered to you in the good news of the gospel, that there is forgiveness for the sins that you have. That no matter what's in your past, what you've done, you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus came to save. I, was, I am exactly the kind of person that Jesus came to save. So if that's a decision you'd like to make this morning, if that is uh, uh, the call that you feel on your heart right now, that the Lord is pulling you to himself, that I would love to pray with you. If you believe he sat down at your table and is talking with you, I'd love to help you navigate that also. Come down to the front. We'll pray together. Father, thank you for the forgiveness that is offered to us. The relief that comes from knowing that you have the authority to offer this forgiveness. The relief that comes from knowing that we don't have to try and and, and pay back a debt of sin that was too big for us to carry. That your son did it for us. That not only was he nailed to the cross, but so was my sin. Thank you for the love the mercy, the compassion that we see in Jesus Christ recorded in this gospel. I pray that you would make us a church that carries people to Jesus. Father, that we would care deeply about what we believe, but we would also care deeply about people that are lost and taking that gospel to them. I pray these things in Jesus' name.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love and God of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we have or ask, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace this morning.